Kiona, and welcome to Insight Intercom. The team just got back from the Sasser Annual Conference in San Jose last week, where we had a great time meeting and talking with folks who are thinking about the most strategic ways to grow their SaaS business in 2019. Our conversations brought to mind an interview we did last year with Rachel Hepworth, the head of growth marketing at Slack, one of the fastest growing startups of this generation. We thought we'd bring back the interview we did with Rachel and revisit the insights that she shared on how she drove growth at Slack. Rachel joined Slack in 2016 as the product was striving to expand into the enterprise space and appeal to a broader set of user groups and industries. Her team oversaw everything in the marketing funnel, from demand generation to product marketing, customer activation, expansion, and monetization. And many of the strategies she shared with our host Adam Risman are ones that apply directly to any startup looking to scale these days. For instance, one of the first things she did after joining was to pivot the way Slack measured customer acquisition. Last year, we pivoted from just saying how many teams are we creating to how many work teams are we creating because work teams are the teams that pay Slack, even though an enormous amount of our team creation is social based on how much people love Slack. She also spoke about the work required to build out a more sophisticated lead prioritization model for sales. One of the biggest tracks of work has been just building the infrastructure and tools. So. Bringing on a lead scoring tool, bringing on the marketing automation tools, hooking up our product data to marketing data, so that we're even smarter about the marketing messages that we employ. Last but not least, Rachel spoke about the need to safeguard the brand as you pursue growth tactics. It's hard to build a brand. It's quick to destroy a brand, and a lot of the growth tactics and initiatives we might employ, you might have an initial positive result, but if you're digging the brand over time, you will really hurt yourself. This interview with Rachel was part of a larger series of interviews that we did on the topic of unlocking growth. So, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out other ones in the series by going to iTunes, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. Let's listen in. This is Inside Intercom. Rachel, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thanks. So, just to get us started, you are leading growth marketing at one of the fastest-growing software companies we've seen in this generation and probably ever. So. How did you get yourself into that position? <laughs> It's a lot of luck and serendipity, I would say.、Um, that's kind of defined my career. So, I think the the role that started me on this path was I joined a very small startup a little over a decade ago called Weatherbill that eventually was rebranded to a company called Climate Corp. While I was there. And the company just seemed really intriguing. It sold weather derivatives to businesses of any size to basically protect them from the weather. So, if you can imagine companies, retail companies, agricultural companies, event companies, if it rains, if it snows, if it's too hot, their revenue will dip. And there had previously never been a way for people to protect against that downside. You could only exchange multi-million-dollar derivatives on some kind of energy platform. So the idea seemed really cool. I joined as their basically demand gen marketer. And spent a year throwing things at the wall, trying to build interest and pipeline for the sales team, and failing 100% at every single thing that I did. It was a very interesting experience in the classic.、Uh, what I later learned was the classic startup experience of really smart founders and founding team have an idea that's really clever, don't validate it at all in the market. 
build out a product, build out a team, realize they don't have product market fit, and just freak out and don't know what to do. I hadn't heard of any of these concepts before I joined, so I was basically discovering it from scratch. So after a year of total failure, nobody wants to repeat what they've been doing and not succeeding at again and again. So I just started reading a lot, and I stumbled upon Eric Ries and Steve Blank, the concept of customer development. It was like a revelation. These people were describing exactly what I had Your whole experience you've been through? Exactly. And I pivoted my own function from trying to generate demand for a product that clearly wasn't quite right to let's figure out what the right product is. And eventually over the next year, figured out that instead of building a product that was highly customizable for any size of business and you enter 50 different inputs and then come out with perfect insurance product for you, we had to tell our potential customers what their risk was, tell them what the inputs were, and then tell them what the product they wanted to buy was. We were making them do too much work and eventually focused on agriculture, focused on corn and soybean farmers, changed from a concept of a thousand tiny contracts sold a day to a couple of giant contracts sold a month. And then eventually after I had left, we started to see that we had product market fit. We got sales leads. We were closing deals. Climate Corp ended up being acquired by Monsanto for a little bit over a billion dollars. So really interesting experience and story of you have an idea, you think it's great, you do the exact wrong thing of building out the machine before understanding it. Trying to grow it too quickly. Figuring out the problem, pivoting the product, pivoting the sales model, pivoting the marketing model, seeing that you have fit. And then all of a sudden things take off and you're like, ah, I know, I know that we've uh, kind of found the holy grail. Very painful experience, but very impactful experience living through that versus just reading about it. I took a quick break to go to business school and my mindset there was I probably won't learn anything crucial for my career, but I'll meet a lot of cool right. people. <laughs> that turned out to be exactly what happened. Some of my best friends are from business school, but I wouldn't advise it as a a helpful career move for anybody in tech, just more like a lifestyle, I enjoy my life type of move. Um, And then from there, I joined LinkedIn initially on their subscriptions team to grow their subscriptions product and then moved around to various different functions like uh, consumer marketing for the homepage, eventually doing lifecycle and um, running the marketing for all the content products like the feed and the influencer posts and, and things like that. Some of the things that drive the daily engagement for LinkedIn. And I was looking for a new challenge. The LinkedIn is an amazing company. On the consumer side, the product really drives everything. So the product drives engagement. The product drives growth. Marketing is really important for insights and messaging and positioning, but I wanted to be more responsible for actual business metrics. And so I was looking around for what the next opportunity would be in a sign of how small the tech world is. Slack's new VIP product, April Underwood, worked very briefly with me at the Tiny Climate Corp startup many, many years ago. And I kind of connected with her, learned about what Slack needed, and ended up joining as their head of growth. And at the time, their head of growth marketing meant me. Mm-hmm. I was the head of one person and really built out the team over the past year and expanded kind of funnel stage by funnel stage, started off really focusing on making sure that all of the teams that Slack had acquired were healthy, active, and would might eventually pay us and have expanded up and down the funnel to now be part of performance marketing, demand generation, all the way through driving those teams to actually upgrade us through the self-service funnel. Awesome. Yeah, I want to get into how you've built out the team here in a minute. But one thing I'm curious about right off the bat is historically, Slack has relied so heavily on virality for its growth. Mm-hmm. And I know Stuart has talked about that at many conferences and There was occasionally advertising here and there, which you could turn off or turn on, depending on if it's working. But what made it 
that point when you joined later in 2016 the right time to mm-hmm. actually look at at growth marketing because mm-hmm. until then at least publicly it hadn't really been talked about as something that slack was going to actively pursue mm-hmm. so in 2014 and 15 slack had this incredible growth but it's a growth off of a small base and so it can be growth based off of your very early adopters and for slack that is clearly the engineering and dev communities who love new tools they love new ways of working they hate things like email anything old school and they were happy to bring slack on in their functional teams and say let's experience with this new way of working and it was very successful as Slack expands into a larger enterprise product, goes outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, you have to start appealing to groups of people and types of roles and industries that aren't in that really early adopter group. So media companies, finance companies, retail companies, uh, sales functions, marketing functions, customer support, how do you attract these different types of people and build the value for Slack going wall-to-wall inside of a large company versus just going wall-to-wall in a startup of 10 people or being siloed in the engineering department of a larger company? So That involves a lot more education, a lot more outreach, and a lot more nurturing for people whose DNA is not to try new things and kind of scrappily figure out the best way to make it work. Somewhat similar to Climate Corp, we have to figure out how to tell them what the value is and serve them up the solution rather than saying Slack is here. All you have to do is enter your email to get started. We're pretty sure you'll be successful from there, which is the way we've been operating in the past. So... I imagine there was a lot of low-hanging fruit sitting there for you when you walked in the door, which means prioritizing that was probably one hell of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Where did you start? I mean, mm-hmm. What was your mindset? Mm-hmm. So we knew we were going to start with performance marketing, and that's partly because it's something the team had dipped their toes in. It had shown signs of success. It's something that uh, Stuart is particularly interested in because of its scalability. And Slack has obviously raised a lot of money, so it's something that we weren't hampered by budgets mm-hmm. as long as the ROI was there. So the first thing we did was build out a pretty robust performance marketing team, and they're expanding their scope now. I think... What's key about Slack's performance marketing team is it's very sophisticated compared to most. We use a multi-touch attribution system. There's no first click, last click. We track everything and we give credit for, you know, impressions, clicks, actual conversions. And we spent a lot of time and effort setting up that foundational system and making sure that our data was really good. So a lot of folks outsource performance marketing to agencies or use a simpler attribution system, which I think is fine and correct if your budget is smaller. But for the amount of money Slack is spending, we needed to bring it in-house. So that was really heavy lifting, but that performance marketing team is now driving a fairly hefty chunk of team creation. And so it's been very successful. And it's what we spent most of 2017 building out. In 2018, there's going to be a lot of focus on the more typical demand gen function. So we have a lot of people going to slack.com. And it's very simple to start a team. But for those who aren't inclined to just jump into those waters and try to convince their coworkers that there's a new way to work, Mm -hmm. we need to do a little bit more in terms of holding their hand, showing them the value, giving them more information, not just saying there's a homepage with an email enter field. Click here to get started, which is what we've been relying on up until now. What were some of the aha moments that you experienced very early there as you're trying to basically take this product and fit it to channels? One is just that when you have a product that is so strong on the organic and word of mouth side of things, driving additional demand through marketing programs is actually quite hard because you're trying to build off of a fairly strong base. So one thing that we've talked about a lot is that Slack has this incredible 
organic word of mouth, how do we supercharge that and make it easier for people to talk about Slack, start Slack teams, incentivize them? One example there, and I think the product can do a huge amount there. So one example is Slack recently released a new product feature called Share Channels, where you can actually work with another company an external organization inside of your own Slack instance where each Slack team is sharing a channel and you don't have to go and switch to email when you're working with people. So say you bring in own. an agency for a project. Exactly. The agency use case is a, is a key one. So if you have a brand or advertising campaign and you're working with an external agency, how do you not need to change your workflows that you do internally for that external partnership? You just bring them right into a shared Slack channel and you continue working in that way. That has potentially huge virality effects as well as building a moat around Slack. So that's a little bit where the product and then growth marketing will meet in terms of, okay, the product enables you to share a channel, but how do we make sure that people know about it? How do we create really great invite and email flows? How, when that other company gets an invite to a shared channel, do they understand what it means if they're not already a Slack user how do we enable them to start a Slack team and then accept that shared channel request? Uh, so it's a lot about building those those flows. So you mentioned the team started with performance marketing. Mm-hmm. Walk me through how you built it out from there. And was that more of a, a proactive approach? Or as you guys were scaling your operations, did things start to bend and you had to respond to that? We knew we wanted to build out the team because we'd already done enough in 2016, mostly before I joined, to know that there was value there. And I'll be completely honest, I am not an expert in performance marketing. That is a function where people go really deep and they have a lot of very, very specific knowledge, particularly when you're spending a lot of money. So the first thing I did is I hired somebody (laughs) who knew a lot more about performance marketing than I did. And I was honest about the fact that I think I'm really good at asking questions to learn and test assumptions. But that doesn't mean that I can talk about the intricate details of setting up a really great search or display campaign. And so we hired somebody who had a lot of experience and could recommend ways to build out the team. And the great thing about performance marketing is the ROI is really obvious. So you can justify increased spend and increased headcount based on the performance. And that's what we've done. So we had this team of three with really hefty budgets and really hefty goals. And they've been successful enough that now that team is expanding and taking on new responsibilities based on the success that they've had so far. So one of my great philosophies with growth, because it spans so many areas, is I really only know enough to be dangerous in many of these areas. And the biggest thing I can do for Slack is hire people who know a lot more than I do and give them free reign to do their best work. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. 
We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So be it around prioritization or measurement, as you've scaled the team, are there any particular values or principles that you guys really work behind? So one of the things I'm really concerned about is just we're not here to acquire just free teams. We're here to acquire teams that have the potential of paying slack (laughs) at some point. Yeah. So, you know, we look at how many teams are created, but, you know, last year we pivoted from just saying how many teams are we creating to how many work teams are we creating? Because work teams are the teams that pay slack, even though an enormous amount of our team creation is social based on how much people love slack. And then we, we move from just looking at work teams to created to looking at what we call early activated work teams created, which are teams that have actually invited somebody to join. A slack team of one is a lonely place and unlikely to be successful. And then, you know, if they've invited a couple people, have they exchanged any messages? So the bar is fairly low because it has to be something people can achieve quickly so that we can iterate and test off of it and not wait five months. But it's high enough that it actually screens out a lot of teams of people who just said, I don't really know what Slack is. I just want to get in there and experiment with it and see if it's at all like what I think it's like. And so looking at the full funnel of metrics and not just stopping at that team creation number is really important for knowing if we are driving value for the company. The friction is so low to starting a Slack team that you could really drive a lot of really poor quality teams if you didn't pay attention to it. So that's the first one. And the second one is, I'm always asking the team, how can we put in less effort for better results or more learnings, particularly at a place like Slack? The quality bar is really high and the temptation is to go all in on everything, which I appreciate and I think is important. High impact, but high effort, right? Yes, exactly. Or in the worst case, high effort and low impact, which, you know, if you don't test it first, you can't be perfect every time. You're going to have some duds. So how can we be really clever and scrappy about doing a very small initial test when we're trying a new channel or a new strategy and just getting some of that quick, quick early feedback of is this worth investing more in or not, and then scaling up for there and not throwing in enormous resources to make the most beautiful thing that never moved a a single number. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's a difficult balance to strike, too. I mean, because like you said, you have to test it before you know. So It's difficult. And actually, you know, uh, designing really smart MVP tests is quite hard. Because the temptation is you scale it back too much, it's not successful, but you didn't invest enough to know if it would really be successful because it was such a scrappy, bare-bones experience that it was just a poor test and it was never going to work. It was doomed to failure. So you really have to strike the right balance. It's it's pretty tough to design those tests. You mentioned Slack's history with sales earlier and how that may be changing as you go after more enterprise customers that are going to need a... I guess, earlier touch point with, mm-hmm. with a real person. So Slack historically has not had salespeople. Do you have salespeople now? Is that official? We role? do. We yeah. have quite a robust sales team, and it's growing very rapidly in size. But that is a, that's a development over this past year. Mm-hmm. Before that, we, we had a very, very small, minimal sales team. So how has that impacted your team's work? Because I know growth marketers, in classic sense, work very, very closely with sales mm-hmm. to make sure that they have the content that they need to get those customers over the line and show them how this may be a great fit for their enterprise and to get in the door to be able to Mm -hmm. land and expand Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. 
The relationship at Slack, I think, is quite different than most enterprise companies. So we don't have your classic MQL program, which is where, um, you know, demand gen would come in and do all of this nurturing and uh, score them in Salesforce and the sales team would pick it up from there. Our goal is really to get those healthy work teams created because the sales team prospects from the existing Slack user database, which I think is an incredible benefit because would you rather go after somebody who's actively using the product and you know is getting value, or would you rather go after somebody who downloaded a white paper right. and you think may be vaguely interested and may have some intent? So we need to take advantage of that freemium funnel where there's no barrier to getting in the door and use that to help the sales team be really, really efficient. We're building that relationship over time. Slack has scaled so much faster than the actual infrastructure and teams have that it's a little bit of like running after the growth. So right now we're working on an account or company scoring model where we take those teams that are active in Slack and help the sales team understand which ones they should prioritize. So for a lot of a lot of the sales team, there are so many active work teams it's a great position to be in, in that you have so many options, but that also means that you can be really inefficient with your time. Yeah, you well, how do you how do you pick from those, and how do you exactly? Up, yeah. So we're implementing this scoring model right now, where we'll take a combination of the activity level of the team. So how much value is this team getting out of Slack? Do they have a lot of people on it? Are they very active every day? Are they using integrations? And then we combine that with you know firmographic data of you know size of company and the industry it's in, and we use that to prioritize the just thousands and thousands of teams that they could go after. Uh, so instead of an MQL model, it's a little bit it's a little bit closer to what people are now calling a PQL model mm-hmm. of product qualified leads. There's a separate team that does sales support and enablement. So we work from the same playbook in terms of insights about the customers and the value story that we want to tell. But my team is not responsible for sales enablement. It stops at the point of either upgrade through the self-service funnel or is triggered as um, a viable lead for sales. And then we step away. So has that been a major change that you've felt in your in your own team's workflow that you've had to respond to? Or has it been pretty smooth today at just getting your feet wet in this area? It hasn't been a major change yet, but I anticipate it being a change. Um, The team is going to grow to do a little bit more of that getting teams to the active, expanded, sales-ready state in 2018. I think one of the biggest tracks of work has been just building the infrastructure and tools. So bringing on a lead scoring tool, bringing on the marketing automation tools, hooking up our product data to marketing data so that we're even smarter about the marketing messages that we employ. You know, again, Slack grew faster than its infrastructure. So this is all quite painful, but also really foundational and and worth the very heavy lifting that it has to go through. So it's a little bit of a pushing the giant boulder up the hill that we are engaged in right now. And then we're going to build that marketing to sales model this year. It's really in its infancy stage. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Is there anything that, in hindsight, you wish that your team had been more proactive in doing to help with this change? Or is it simply something that you can't really respond to it until it's happening? I think we've been fairly proactive. Nothing is ever as fast as you wish it were. Um, And even if it's fast, you wish it went faster. So I always want things to be speedier, but it's not that they've been slow. It's just faster is always better. I think the one thing that I wish, not so much on the sales relationship side, but just growth marketing in general, that we've been able to iterate on faster is just website testing and iteration because we have so, so many visitors to the website and we have not yet enabled the systems to allow for really rapid 
rapid testing. We have a very robust engineering team, design team, and writers, and uh, that's all a wonderful place to be, but we haven't enabled the tools that, for instance, would let a marketer quickly test a landing page in a day. It doesn't exist yet. It's something that we have to bring on now. Um, and so I think there, are, given it's just the size of the visitors to Slack.com, I think that's where some of the biggest wins will come from. So seeing as I am talking to Slack or a representative of Slack here, uh, one thing I would have to bring up at some point is Slack's brand. It's so so strong and well-defined and mm-hmm. something that you all have been known for for so long. As someone whose team is creating one of the very first touch points for that brand, mm-hmm. having that be such a strong, well-known thing, is that an advantage for your team and that it creates some boundaries or is it a disadvantage and that as you're wanting to test things so quickly and rapidly that you're having to have that checkpoint and pull back a little bit? We're not restricted too much by a checkpoint. I think it's mostly that people trust that we're reasonable, smart mm-hmm. people and we're not going to destroy the brand. So it's not a tension point testing. in any way. It's not, it's not a tension point. I think there's a reasonable balance. You know, one thing I strongly believe in is that brand lifts a company hugely over time and it's hard to build a brand. It's quick to destroy a brand. And a lot of the growth tactics and initiatives we might employ you might have an initial positive result, but if you're digging the brand over time, you will really hurt yourself because it's going to impact growth. And one of the examples I always like to go back to is actually from my days at LinkedIn, where people are fairly familiar with LinkedIn's incredible email machine. And there are a lot of jokes made about it, but it's very performant and it drives a lot of business. The challenge is, is that every individual email that LinkedIn sent out or spun up would have positive metrics in that email silo. But then when you take a step back, you can look at some of LinkedIn's most active members and say, that person got 300 emails last month. Nobody thinks that's a good thing or experience. And the CTR on all the emails have depressed dramatically over time. So incrementally, it all looked good. But when you stand back holistically as, first of all, just a rational human being, and second of all, actually looking at the metrics of the email program in general, you could see how much damage has been done. And that is a real learning point that I I hold dear to all the time is that individual tactics can look good in isolation, but you really have to look at the holistic impact on the customer and really just use some common sense. If something feels spammy and low value and bad, it probably is. And you don't necessarily need a test to tell you that. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Exactly. So looking forward at the year ahead, where do the biggest growth opportunities do you think lie for Slack and how's your team approaching that? How are you looking to get there? We're focusing a lot on the website, as I said. So um, Slack's website is fairly simple right now because we've been 100% focused on getting people to enter their email and create a team. And now as we expand out to new audiences and we know we need to nurture and educate different types of people more, we have to build out the website quite a bit, build out a lot more content um, and educational info on the website and build some of those customer journeys. And so that's going to be a huge point of effort. There are some things that we're really interested in experimenting with. We have this really robust set of integrations and partners. How can we work with partners to drive growth? How can we supercharge our own member base that already is so powerful and use them as a way to spread the word about Slack a little bit more? And then the third thing is really how do we ramp up the efficiency between all of the free creative work teams we acquire and getting them to upgrade or passing them off to sales in a much, much, much more efficient and seamless manner. So it's still a lot of kind of foundational big rock areas that we're going to be focused on, but 
we've got our goals yeah. established for the year. So we got to start running towards them. Sounds like a lot of work, but also a lot of room to experiment and have some fun along the way too. It's always fun to build things from the ground up. So just to close out, Rachel, I've got a few rapid fire questions for you that we're asking all the growth guests that are coming on the show these days. So short answer is totally fine. Feel free to expand on any that you want, though. Mm-hmm. You ready to get started? I'm ready. All right. So first up, favorite growth tactic that you think is underused? Uh, so this is not typically thought of as a growth tactic, but it goes back to my product marketing and Climate Corp days, and that is research and customer insights. And I think this is overlooked so often, but you can do messaging that's okay, or you can really know who you're targeting and just nail their pain points and reduce the time of them saying, what is this to I need this? And it's something I think people don't rely on enough. Growth teams are often siloed as just the testing center, but if they're not really deeply grounded in the customer. And this isn't like a one-on-one customer call. This is really knowing who they are. You're missing out on a lot of opportunity. Hopefully this doesn't uh, bring you back in any painful business school memories, but one <laughs> one book that's influenced your thinking and why? Uh, I really love Made to Stick, actually. It's one of the only um, sort of business-oriented books I've read more than once, but this concept of people remember and are compelled by stories and not by facts and figures It's so true, but it's so easy to forget. And particularly as a rather quantitative marketer, I forget it all the time. And so I think it's a really entertaining book, but also I think they're right on the money in what they talk about. As someone who's trying to show someone how to get value out of a product, I'm sure when you use an app or a product yourself, you're in your head evaluating the onboarding experience a little Mm -hmm. bit. Anything that sticks out recently? I love the onboarding for Headspace, which is this meditation Meditation app. app, you know, I'm trying to be more zen. Uh, (laughs) And so I've experimented with it. But meditation is, you know, kind of this very opaque concept to a lot of people. And they do a really good job of walking you through it initially. But then what I really love is that they keep the they have what I call continuous onboarding. So it's not like it's the first five seconds and now we're never going to help you again. It's opportune moments. We trigger some piece of educational content that makes sense for you in that moment. And I think they do a really nice job. Awesome. Messengers, game-changing new channel for growth, way overhyped, too early to tell? I mean, I can't not say that they're not game-changing given (laughs) where I work. Um, But even separate from Slack, when you think about WhatsApp and WeChat and Facebook Messenger, I think it's pretty obvious that this is a major new platform that people are experimenting with. I think Apple just came out with competitive messaging product today where companies can interact with their customers on Apple's messaging app. So this is where people are more and more spending all of their time. And whenever there's a new channel that people spend a lot of time in, that's going to be a pretty impactful channel going forward. Last one for you. What's a common mistake that you see other growth marketing teams making at startups when it comes to running experiments? What really just gets under your skin? Not knowing what you're going to learn from the experiment. So, um, it's not just let's put out this email or this piece of content or put this you know, CTA here, it's if it's successful, what does this mean? And if it fails, what does this mean? You should be able to learn something either way. Most of your experiments will fail. And especially at a startup when there's so much you don't know, most things are just experiments where you should have an actual hypothesis going into it, not just throw random things at the wall. And you know, I made this mistake at Climate Corp. I didn't have any hypotheses. I just tried everything and then moved on to the next one. It didn't work. And so I've been there and I've I've made that mistake. But the only true failure in an experiment is if you don't learn anything from it. But you really have to do that from work of what is your theory going in up front. 
I think that's some great closing advice. We'll leave it there. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.